This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gecko. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy. Uh, we're going to give you some amazing science now between, uh, what is it, one minute past 11 and 12 o'clock. In the studio with me is Dr. Laura. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You well? Very not, well. And not you? frozen? Not frozen. It's bloody cold this morning, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. I, was, I was freezing. Uh, that could have been I spent too much time in the um, frozen section of the supermarket. <laughs> you know, anyway, Dr. Ewan, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Dr. Shane? Less envious than you are of what we're about to play. <laughs> oh, that hurts. That hurts. Yes. And Chris KP, how you going, buddy? I'm at an average level of envy, uh, but good to be here. Uh, that's fantastic. And Liv's doing our Twitter feed today. Um, she's dropped by, which is great. Now, should you know, we never really talk about what you guys, um, what your backgrounds are. I thought we'd just throw it out there because we don't normally tell people. So, Dr. Laura, you're an immunologist. I am. It sounds impressive. <laughs> Ewan's a ecologist. Correct. Yeah. Less impressive. Less impressive. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow. Hang on. Jokes. Wow. Whoa. Jeeze, I tell you, the, it's bi- on wow. the bi- oh, yeah. biological people are kicking each other. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is your divide and conquer, isn't it? Because, Hang on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what you're doing because my background's in botany. I know oh, what's going to happen. I was, now. I was yeah. a, hey, I'm with you, brother. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to intro you, Chris, oh. but, but given Dr. Laura's comment there, I don't know. Yeah. What, what should we say? A, a science communicator extraordinaire. Uh, yeah, I'd go with that. Yeah, singer, yeah. singer, songwriter, producer, communicator. Yeah, they're all very keep going. This is great. Ex, I'm loving this. Polymath, ex botanist, polymath. That's <laughs> what I. Yes, thank you. Yeah, ex botanist, polymath. Yeah, and I'm a lapsed physicist, or you know, well, I think once you collapsed physicist, collapsed. Yeah, <laughs> into a neutron star. Um, I think once you're trained in something, you're that for life. At least that's for what life. I tell my friends who are accountants. <laughs> what? That's nice. Anyway, folks, we, um, we're very lucky today because we do have, uh, an interview which I want to play for you, which I was very lucky to record on Friday night with the amazing Dr. Jane Goodall. And this is thanks to the team from Think Inc. who Just have quickly, her. Did, did she know you were recording it? <laughs> yes, she did. I hope so. I, I think she did. Um, anyway, the team from Think Inc. were kind enough to uh, hooks up on Friday night, which was just brilliant. And of course, Jane is, uh, in Australia for a few weeks and she's going to be in Melbourne, uh, this Friday night, I believe. If you want to go and see her, have a look at the Think Inc. website. She's an amazing lady. I think she's 82 now. Um, but boy, she's still got it. She's fantastic. So we will put all the details of the show and so forth up on our Twitter and Facebook feeds, uh, for you today. Um, but in the meantime, here is the interview with, uh, Jane Goodall. I hope you enjoy it. It was a lot of fun to, uh, record. And, um, here we go. Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane Huntington and our guest today is Dame Jane Goodall, famed primatologist and incredible environmental activist. Jane, it's wonderful to be speaking to you. Thanks so much for giving us the time today on Triple R. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's good talking to you. Now, um, I'd like to start with some of your sort of earliest uh, memories of science, how you got interested in science. Was there something in particular that drew you in or was it something you were just sort of born with? I was born with a love of animals and wanting to learn about animals. When I was 10, I wanted to go to Africa and live with wild animals and write books about them. Mm -hmm. I had no pretension of being a scientist. I think going back 70 years in England, most most girls didn't think about science really. Uh, But after I'd been lucky enough to meet the late Louis Leakey 
And he'd given me the amazing opportunity of going and studying not just any animal, but chimpanzees. And then after one and a half years, he told me that I would have to get my own money in the future and that I would need a degree. And there was no time, as he put it, to mess about with the BA. And so he got me a place at Cambridge to do a PhD. And that was my introduction to the world of science, being plunged into Cambridge University. I mean, this is such an incredible story for people hearing it today because the idea of doing a PhD without having done a bachelor's degree these days is probably something that is almost a myth. Um, I mean, how do you describe that to people today, That what that experience was like? Well, it was, you know, first of all, I was really scared. I was told I was doing a PhD in ethology. I didn't even know what ethology meant. I mean, mm. I think scientists love to use words that, make it seem very grand. It's just animal behavior, which everybody can understand. But ethology makes it seem, you know, esoteric and, and, and um, very scientific and very important. But anyway, yeah. so when, when, when I got to Cambridge, I was very nervous of these erudite professors who had all this learning. So you can imagine what it was like for me when many of them told me I'd done everything wrong that the chimpanzee should have had numbers, not names. That wasn't at all scientific. And that I shouldn't be talking about their personalities or their minds capable of solving problems. And I absolutely shouldn't talk about them having emotions. That was the height of anthropomorphic sin, giving human characteristics to non-human animals. Mm. And fortunately, when I was a child, I'd had a teacher and he had taught me that for all their learning, these scientists in this respect were completely wrong. And that teacher was my dog. Right. You can't share your life in a meaningful way with a dog, a cat, a rabbit, a bird, and not know that animals have personalities, minds, and emotions. Yeah, absolutely. When, when, when you think back to those times, uh, I mean, just... You're, you're in the environment you were in with the chimpanzees. You, you must have been learning some of these things at an incredible rate about their emotions and, and just the level of detail. I mean, can you describe what that was like? Well, at first it was incredibly frustrating because the moment they saw me, they would run away. Mm. <laughs> it took several months before I could get close enough to see anything except in the distance with my binoculars. And fortunately, one chimpanzee got used to me before the others. David Greybeard, I called him. Mm-hmm. And so if I came upon a group that was ready to run and he was there, he would sit calmly and the others would look from him to me. And I suppose they thought, well, she can't be so frightening after all. And gradually they came to accept me and I could get closer and that's when I really began, you know, once I knew them as individuals, then I began to understand something about their complex social behaviour. Yeah, as as human beings, um, our acceptance in, in our, our normal human environments means a lot to us, but how did it feel to be accepted into uh, that of another species? I mean, this is quite extraordinary. Yes, I was lucky. Nobody had done it before. Yeah. <laughs> the first time I actually got near a group. I got too close by mistake. I was climbing up a steep 
sort of ravine and I misjudged and I thought I was coming up much further away from this group and I expected them to run and they just looked at me calmly and went on grooming and playing and it was, I felt very, very proud. It was a magical moment. Mm. Were, were there any particular incidents or behaviours that really took you by surprise at the time that you remember now clearly so many years later? Well, the thing that was really significant was when I saw, and again, it was David Greybeard. I saw him using grass stems to fish termites from their nests mm -hmm. and actually picking leafy twigs. And so to use that as a tool, he had to strip the leaves, which is the beginning of tool making. And if we saw that today, it wouldn't be exciting at all. But back then it was because... It was thought that humans and only humans used and made tools. And we were actually defined as man, the tool maker. Mm. So this was what enabled Leakey to get money for me to carry on when the first six months money ran out. So, so I suppose you, you did as much for the definition of humans as you did for chimpanzees in that sense, didn't you, in terms of what, what makes us special? Yes, well, you know, first of all, the the science was showing more and more how chimpanzees resemble us closely biologically. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was discovered that the composition of DNA of humans and chimps differs by only just over 1%. And the structure of the blood, the immune system, the composition of the anatomy of the brain, just so amazingly like ours. So once you tie that in with the behavioral similarities, psychological similarities, you know, the fact that they kiss, embrace, hold hands, the fact that they swagger and shake their fist, mm. the fact that they beg with palm outstretched food, uh, the fact that they show a kind of primitive warfare, but also love, compassion and altruism. Mm. And, you know, so that that it's the, because of the chimpanzees, really, that the attitude of science when I went to Cambridge was that the difference between us and all the other animals was one of kind. And the chimpanzees broke that down and made science open its mind. And so, you know, now we realize we are part of and not separated from the rest of the animal kingdom. So it was, it was pretty exciting to see how gradually these, these, uh, you know, ideas, these, uh, you know, ideas that are not accepted in the world. Yeah, I mean, that's an extraordinary paradigm shift that you initiated and witnessed and, and have watched, um, transition over, over, over a period. When, when you, you think back to all the emotions that you experienced with the chimpanzees, that humans have that you don't see in chimps, or are they all there? I think that I doubt chimpanzees feel guilt. Mm -hmm. I don't think they feel guilt, but you know, it's it's still people are still learning about emotions because for so long animals weren't supposed to have emotions. There was nobody studying it. Mm -hmm. uh, now, now it's a you, you can do PhDs in animal emotion is becoming sort of, you know, something that PhD students are studying eagerly in more and more different animals. Mm. 
When you when you first returned from your field work, having spent so much time with the chimpanzees, how how did you perceive humans again? Uh, did you look at them differently? I found I was watching people. <laughs> you know, so before a lecture, I used to be so nervous, and there were usually dinners, and I couldn't eat. I was, I was much too nervous. So I found that I was watching people eating and their behaviors and the way they talked to each other. And it, was, it was definitely something I picked up from observing the chimps, and it was, it was fun, actually. Yeah. yeah. You know, so the, the fact that chimps are more like us than any other living creature, chimpanzees and bonobos, makes you then ask, yeah, but we are different. So what is it that most clearly differs, makes us different? And in my view, it's the explosive development of our intellect and possibly that in part anyway that was triggered by the fact that at some point in our evolution, we developed the capacity to communicate with words mm. so that unlike unlike animals which don't have words, we can teach children about things that aren't present. We can discuss the distant past. We can make plans for the distant future. And probably most important, if there's a major problem to be solved, we can bring, bring people from different backgrounds, different experience to discuss these problems and try and come up with a solution. Mm. So, you know, the million-dollar question is how is it possible that the most intellectual creature that's ever walked the planet is destroying its only home. Yeah. So, so when you when you think back to the, the way you did the work at the time, and you think of all the advancements that have happened since then, the, I, I note that one of the things that was so valuable to you was the idea of naming these chimps, not not numbering them. Have we? Have we come in a positive direction in the way we do science with animals in that regard, or do you think we've lost something in the transition with technology? Uh, no, I think technology used widely, wisely is actually helping. We, we, we're using quite a lot of the new technology in the chimpanzee studies. For example, collect feces, and you can, for the first time, work out who the fathers are by doing this. DNA analysis for mm. each individual. We never knew who the fathers were because one female can be mated by all the males in her community. So we're also using it to plot out uh, ranges more accurately, plot out the position of the different fruiting trees, and perhaps most important of all, the local villagers are learning how to use i-tablets and smartphones and they can go and check on the health of their forests, and they're very proud to do this. Mm. You must come up across a lot of people in your, your ongoing work who don't appreciate the need to protect the environment. How, how do you go about changing their views? You know, surprisingly few people uh, don't understand, or perhaps it's the people that I tend to meet, they, they do understand the need for conserving the environment. Certainly all the, the villagers living around the chimp habitats, because we're working in seven different African countries now, and they have destroyed their environment because of human population growth and simply being more people than the land can support without access to 
ways of, of increasing food production without destroying more and more of the forest. But it isn't that they don't understand. It's just that they don't know what to do about it. And now we have, because we've been working to improve the lives of the people and introduce some ways of restoring fertility to the soil without using uh, chemical fertilizers and so on. They've become our partners, and all the trees that were once gone around Gombe have come back. So these people, instead of seeing us as white, rich people coming in to study chimps and not caring about them, now realize we do care about them. And conservation won't work if you don't. Do, do you do you think there's a, a a degree of hope at the moment? I mean, when we look at things like the, as you've probably noticed, uh, being here in Australia, the damage to our Great Barrier Reef and others, some of these things are quite extraordinary, and action still isn't being taken. I mean, do you have a degree of hope for for us as a species to to sort our home out? Do you think? Well, you know, you mentioned the coral reef, the Bar- Great Barrier Reef. And then at the same time, the government just approved the go-ahead, gave the go-ahead for this enormous coal mine. Yeah. It will definitely uh, add to the pollution of the ocean and the destruction of the coral reef. But the hope is that more and more people are standing up against this development, which, of course, will release uh, hundreds and thousands of tonnes of of, um, carbon dioxide once the coal is produced taken out of the ground and burned. And I think one of the reasons for hope is social media can, for the first time in history, bring people from far distances who care about an issue so that their voices can be heard. And the swell of voices standing up for protection of the environment is growing all the time. Mm. Now, you you played no small part in that with regards to the program that you set up for young people coming through and, and learning about that. Give, give us a, a little bit about how that's all going, the the, um, the program you've got running, and and how, how many people have, you know, come through it over the years? Well, I can't tell you the number of people who've come through over the years. We, it began in Tanzania in 1991, so we're 25 years old, mm. and starting with 12 high school students from nine schools. We're now in 99 countries with approximately um, 150,000 groups, and a group can be a whole school. And we have members from kindergarten through university. And the main message is every single individual matters and has a role to play. Every single one of us makes some impact on the environment every single day and we have a choice what kind of difference we're going to make and right from the start every group of this program Roots and Shoots choose for themselves three different projects or a minimum of three different projects one to make things better for people one to make things better for other animals one to improve the environment around them and so because because the kids get to choose what to do, they're very passionate about it. And then they roll up their sleeves and take action. And it's making a huge difference. It's, uh, it's helping young people understand the problems, listening to them and empowering them. 
I mean, my, in my experience, Jane, the uh, the kids seem to get this a lot quicker than many of the adults. Is that is that your experience as well? Yes, I think so. And they're, and they're actually influencing their parents and grandparents as yeah. well. I mean, they, they learn about it early on and they can see what's happening. Whereas when I was young, um, there was, you know, we weren't destroying the planet like we are today. I mean, of course, in some areas we were. But, you know, you asked about hope. And I think it's the young people and determined and, and uh, sometimes courageous, too, in, in tackling these pro- problems. Problems or pro- pro- projects, and um, you know, my next reason for hope is the innovative technological solutions that we are creating with our amazing brains, like clean green energy and so on, and the way that we're thinking about the consequences of the little choices we make each day: what we eat, what we buy, what we wear, where did it come from, how was it made, did it harm the environment. Did it cause cruelty to animals or child slave labor, something like that? And do we need it? You know, that's using our brain. And when millions of people make the correct ethical choices, even if they're tiny choices, it's going to start making a major difference. And then there's the resilience of nature. Destroy a place, give it time, and very often life can return and become a habitat for animals again. And then there's, well, social media, which I already mentioned. And then there's what I call the indomitable human spirit, the people who tackle the impossible and won't give up. Mm. Jane, this might be a hard question to answer, but what's the sort of proudest moment of your life in terms of some of the amazing achievements you've had? I mean, many of the people listening, I don't think you need any introduction to them. They're they're incredibly um, proud of the things you've done over the years and the role you've played. But to you personally, what's mattered the most? You know, it's really difficult to answer that question. I suppose the... The, you know, the early discoveries about the chimpanzees, the fact that there's different kinds of mothering, gradually learning how the chimpanzees who have the good supportive mothers do better, that takes place over time. It isn't something which suddenly you learn. And, you know, even the tool using, it was very exciting to see David Graybeard using and making tools, but it's far more exciting to realize that chimpanzees in different parts of Africa use objects in different ways and have their own cultures because, you know, behavior passed from one generation to the next through observation and learning. So it's, it's hard for me to pick one aspect over, over any of the others. It's a cumulative effect of learning about these amazing beings. Mm. Now, if you had your choice of exploring our deepest oceans or outer space, Mars, other other planets, and you had to pick one, which one would it be? I'd pick the deepest oceans because it's near at hand and there's still so much to learn. Mm. Now, I think we've um, we've taken up probably enough of your time. You're you're here in Australia for how long? It's about it's about three weeks. Okay, we will put all the details of your shows. Uh, especially in Melbourne, up on our website and link those up. Jane, it's been an absolute privilege speaking with you today and thanks so much for taking the time and have a great time here in Australia. 
Well, thanks very much. It was good speaking to you and all of the all of those listening. Hello to you and goodbye. Three triple. Now we're back. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on Three Triple R. And we're going to give you some amazing news now for the next half an hour. There's just sometimes there's so much science news we can't fit it into a news segment. And uh, today is one of those days. Actually, I think we just we didn't have anything else. So no, we we've got heaps. Uh, Dr. Laura's freaking out. You're first. <laughs> what do you got for us? Actually, I've got I've got one story that's actually a pretty massive story. <laughs> Sorry. Why, why is everyone laughing? Um, so actually. Two really sort of monumental papers came out in Nature this week that showed that fa- showed that there's new fossils that have been found in Morocco, which actually pushes back the origins of our species. So if you get on Wikipedia and you say, you know, when were the first human remains found? It'll tell you that it was in Ethiopia. It was about 200,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. This completely changes that. Um, they found fossils in a site in Morocco. Um, and they found that these um, fossils are approximately 300,000 years old, really kind of, so that's pushing back our sort of homo sapien lineage back, you know, sort of mm, another half on, a lot. So it tells us that there's no sort of, you know, Garden of Eden. It's not kind of East Africa. It's actually the whole continent. So that kind of changes that as well. And so they found, um, actually, what there was a picture that was really cool of what they found. They actually had a whole jawbone yeah, with that. three yeah. teeth in it. Yeah. That was amazing that that was intact. But they found um, skulls, um, teeth, bones from at least five individuals. They also found tools. So there was evidence that these people were using fire. And um, they were able to determine the age um, by various methods. But one of the also kind of major findings that they found is that in our species, the face actually appeared to develop before the brain. So they said the faces of these um, people would actually be really quite indistinguishable from our own. So they had quite flat faces, small chins, heavy brows, but the brain was different. So the brain was actually quite smaller. And so they're predicting that our faces kind of evolved first. And after that, it was our brains. They're actually longer in these people. So maybe they got more sophisticated over time with more connections and that kind of, you know, followed after the face. Mm. I'm still disappointed that doesn't bring bring our species back to the same as the dinosaurs. I mean, that... (laughs) I've heard that. Give it time. You Give reckon? it time. Yeah, Give it time. Because I've heard some people who who, yeah. who think that we, you know, run around with T Rexes, and that'd be pretty funny. But uh, but no, three but three hundred thousand years. I mean, you often hear about these things. You know, a few weeks back we spoke uh, to a researcher from Perth who was talking about the earliest indigenous sort of uh, remains found here in Australia, and that pushed it back. I think from forty to fifty thousand years or something. And you get those small increments, but to go from two hundred. To three hundred thousand years, like that's mm. that's like uh, you know we've been really wrong for a while, and, and also it kind of shows us how wrong we were that when they first uncovered this cave in Morocco, they found kind of you know fossils. Then they yeah. estimated that they were forty thousand years old, right, right, and they only kind of that was disputed at the time, you know, as time went on, and, and then they kind of reopened the site in two thousand and four. I mean, how wrong is that? That you know forty thousand to three hundred thousand, yeah, yeah, that's a bit off. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's a lot off. Well, that's cool stuff. It's good. Every Everything at the moment seems to be falling into the category of rewrite the children's textbooks. You know, like I remember when I was a kid and the, when I was a child, <laughs> the, um, the textbooks didn't change that often. There wasn't that many monumental changes to our textbooks. The only one I, I really remember, and I brought this into the station once, is I've got a geology book at home that talks about the mountains and how they were created by the shrinking apple effect of the earth. Oh, wow, really? Yeah. It's from the 60s. 
from wow. the sixties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it talks about how you know the Earth shrinks like an apple, and and hence you get all the ridges, and they're the mountains. Like Hang ancient mountains in the sixties, so yeah, yeah, you know, cool it. stuff. It's a- <laughs> <laughs> you lick the pages, the book is awesome. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Could well be. Uh, but you know, there's a lot of things like that that we don't see changing. But all of these things we're hearing about, there's so many things at the moment where we're really just changing the very basic elements that we learn in school, not yep. not at university, but the things that we learn in school. And that's a yeah, to me, a that's one. a that's a school one. Yeah. You know? Correct those books. There are textbook manufacturers out there just rubbing their hands together right now. We're going to rewrite them all. <laughs> Dr. Ewan. Dr. Shane. What do you got? Uh, zombie beetle sex. Does that interest anybody? Yeah, sounds good. It, well, there's two words in there I love. Well, it interests zombie beetles. parasites i love parasites parasites are among the most amazing group of organisms on the planet in terms of what they do Um, some of us probably have got parasites in us right now and are completely unaware of it they could be influencing our behavior that might explain some certain things (laughs) so this is a this is a bit of a bit of work um from invertebrate uh pathology the journal and um this is uh goldenrod soldier beetles and a particular uh, species of fungus. And this fungus is essentially taking over its host like many parasites do and manipulating their behaviour so that it itself can reproduce. So basically what happens is these little beetles get infected with this fungus and they feed on these flowers, so they sort of congregate there, but they also um, meet there to have sex. And uh, what this fungus does is take advantage of these beetles, so they clamp onto the flower, so they bite onto the flower just before they die, but that's when the cool thing happens. So the beetle dies, it's full of parasites. So those of you who've seen aliens where the mm. parasite parasitoid in that fa- actual fact yes. ruptures out of the the host. <clears throat> so the fungus actually ruptures out of this beetle. But what it does is it actually makes the beetle's wings actually go up as if the beetle's flying. So it goes from a position of being having closed wings to flying. And the reason why it does that is because when a when a beetle is looking active, that's when the boys say, hello, oh. and they fly in for a bit of action. <laughs> and also because the abdomen is a bit more swollen and they're a bit bigger, they're also looking a bit more attractive to the fellas. So, I like big beetle butts. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So yep. there's poor unsuspecting males fly in to have sex with dead zombie female beetles um, and then get infected with <coughs> fungus so it's a wonderful wonderful love story in, in nature really yeah. so yeah I, that, that, I thought that's pretty interesting and I mean this is going on all the time you know with para- parasites doing all this kind of wacky things manipulating Great host stuff. behavior so that they can continue on and do their thing so mm. that was pretty cool that's kind of an extraordinary bit of evolution when you think that I mean this fallen you know abdomen that that, I'm a, that just makes sense that's just physics really yeah you know, exactly built stuff in there but the yeah. wing the wings the wing yeah. thing is yeah. cool and it, and it took 15 to 22 hours for that to happen right that's the cool bit so it's not like it's instantaneous so the you know, the, it kills the host, and then after a few hours, bang, then the wings go up as if the beetle's flying. So, yeah, it's, it's very cool. Mm. That's great. Mm. Yeah, I like yeah. that. It's an amazing world of insects. I'm looking for the segue, but uh, maybe we'll I, just go to parasites. Chris, KP. Thank you. That's better, yes. <laughs> I, you know, I have been to Paris. Um, I, uh, <laughs> but I've never been to me. Uh, I, don't know that I, can, I, I don't know that I can segue for you at all, um, although I can um, backcast you to fossils, though, uh, because because we've also, we're also going to push back the evolution of guild mushrooms um, a, a bit further because we've found one uh, that is 115 million years old. So, mm. yeah, way old um, in, in Colorado, I believe. Now, there are, in fact, deal with this. 
Think about how many dinosaur fossils there are out there. Yeah. Think about how many human fossils, I mean, ancient humans fossils there are out there. There's loads. Mm. There are only 10 fossil mushrooms. Is that because they don't have bones? Nothing hard. Yeah, nothing yeah. hard and also, you know, quite small and short-lived too. Mm. They, yep. you know, mm. they don't hang around very long. Yep. Uh, and in fact, I believe that if not all, then most of those 10 uh, are in fact trapped in amber. So you get a right. bit of tree sap drip yep. down, there's a mushroom underneath and, you know, you're stuck and forever. And most, most fungi's below the ground. So yes, exactly. So you're only, you're only looking at the tiniest part of the Essentially fungus. the yeah. flower. Yeah. For so a it's, a, it's even yep. it's small and rare. So yep. it's, it's only a tiny thing. Yeah, so this so basically they found this one, and what's weird about it is that they found it in sedimentary rock, not inside amber. So how the hell did that happen? And what I love about this is, yes, it's it's taken the date back a bit further, and it's it's beautiful. And they've had to, part of the, um, the classification process using electron microscopy, because they've got to get, you know, into the layers of what is now stone to look at the gills underneath the cap of this mushroom. Mm and managed to do that. But essentially, they've tried to sort of, as best they can, the scientists have tried to describe the story of how this even got to where it was to, for this to happen. And essentially, they said, well, yeah, this thing must have been growing near water somewhere, which is not uncommon. But then it's sort of been knocked or it's fallen into the river and flown downstream into a salt environment, which probably would have killed it anyway. But then it fell to the bottom of that and into the dirt at the ocean, in the estuary or whatever. And then time moves on and then some layers of silt on bit by bit and then it becomes mineralized and I'm like wow and, and we and we found it and we found it yeah that's why there's one <laughs> because you know, every one of these things is really not very likely but yeah, yeah. they found it and it's it's actually quite a beautiful specimen and it's quite because it's it's mineralized so there are sort of mm. you know there are elements of it that are quite almost metallic looking and other parts that are not there's, there's layers and colors to it but yeah so a guild uh, mushroom species evolution going back uh, to 115 million years ago that's very cool stuff. Well, I can't, I'm not going to go back so far, but um, in in the 1936, you guys probably remember this. Um, there was a scenario where, well, let's go back a little bit further. Albert Einstein brings out this theory of general relativity, and everyone thought you're a crazy dude, right? Because essentially, at the time, Newton was a god, essentially in physics, and so he brought out this theory that said, you know, there's this little bit of a issue with Mercury's orbit, and you know, we're not quite predicting it as well as we should. And he said, well, you know, that's maybe because space is curved around large mm. gravitational objects. It's the old, you know, bowling ball on the trampoline mm. scenario, right? And the whole thing curves. And people are like, yeah, right. Um, but it, it, it got pushed along. And, and most people don't know, actually, even though it's it's the thing he's known for most, yes. It's he never got a Nobel Prize for it because the, the politics of the day was such that, you know, no way. And, you know, it possible he wasn't the, the humblest of chaps back then as well. Um, but <laughs> but um, they, they tried to think, well, how do you experimentally verify this? And, and the way to do it at the time, if you think about it, is you basically need... You need a light source a long way away from you, and you need that light source to go past something really big, yeah. right, to, so that that light source bends a little bit or changes mm. direction a little bit. Or and, doesn't. Or doesn't. Yeah. And so if it doesn't, Einstein, sorry, Newton, God. Um, if it does, Einstein, yes, God, uh, you know, bye-bye God. Anyway, um, something like that. Now, the, the cleanest way to do that is if, if you basically look up in the sky, you'll find there's a really big gravitational object that we have nearby called the sun. Um, and if you were to look at a star that's right behind the sun or near the edge of the sun, you could do this experiment. The problem is, of course, when you're staring at the sun, it's very hard to see stars at the right or next Or anything else. Or anything else. Actually, right? so, yeah. Ever again. Yeah. <laughs> Unless, of course, there's an eclipse. Uh-huh. Now, one of the amazing things in our universe is that the moon completely blocks out the sun almost perfectly in our sky. 
how weird is that? Um, but that allows you to do these experiments and look at a star that's pretty close to where our sun is in the sky. And what you do is you measure it basically, um, you know, with and without, without the, the sun there. Um, and you say, okay, you know, is this thing where it should be? Or is it not? And by doing that, you can prove that uh, the general theory of relativity is basically correct. So that's pretty cool because our sun's big, it's close, and as it tracks the the sky, you know, as we as we move around it, you know, it, it gets in the way of a lot of different objects, and we can do that. And even though eclipses aren't that often occurring, they they occur enough that we could do it. But what about if you tried to do this with another star other than the sun? Well, that's a bit harder because these things are damn small in the sky, and the chance of that lining up. Um, with a third object mm. further and further away is is really tough and it's it's never been done actually it's it's not been done it's called gravitational microlensing that's the term but it has actually just been reported in um in june uh, this year um in the journal called science i hadn't heard of it but apparently it's big it's okay <coughs> apparently okay by um kalesh sahu and uh june 9 edition of um of science and basically he he's reported on this um particular star which is essentially a, a white dwarf so this is a star at the end of its life cycle so it's not very interesting at that point but what you can do of course is you can use this entire technique to measure the mass of the object that's doing the lensing so you know, we could use this technique to work out how big the sun is, how much mass it's got, and in the same way, you can use this this knowledge of the universe to work out how massive this object is. So you're essentially using this effect that Einstein predicted, you know, hundred over a hundred years ago, to measure how much a far, far distant star actually weighs or how much mass it's got which is quite extraordinary so this is the first time they've managed to actually do that and you know we hear about other things like the gravitational waves and so forth and they're really big big news big news items but this to me is one of those things where it's it's the precision and the beauty of these Has, experiments have, have other scientists been trying to do this and, and is this the first team or is it just more yeah well you, you yeah. need the alignment you need you need yeah. this thing to line up and and what if, if the alignment's perfect you've got to imagine that the light kind of goes around so think of the sun mm. the light goes around the sun if the alignment's perfect, it goes around every side of it, and you would actually see a, a glow, ring glow, yeah, yeah. instead of a star. So it goes, you know, it, it spreads around it. Um, this wasn't perfect, so you didn't see a ring, but they were able to determine some things about this star that that were not known. And in fact, there were some elements about the way in which this particular star and stars of its type work that they've determined as a result of being able to look at how big it actually is, because you know, brightness and size are related in you know in stellar. And as, a, as, a, as an aside, am I right in, in my vague, vague memory that our sun is going to become a white dwarf too? Yeah, I think it will eventually. Okay. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, actually, it's a good question. Anyway, uh, you know, showing your ignorance. Um, <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for joining me there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Jump right in, Chris. Uh, <laughs> it's been a while. Um, okay, folks, we're going to take a bit of a break for some music and we'll be back in a moment with some more news for you. There's uh, heaps from this week and some pretty cool stuff. So hang in there. You're listening to 3 Triple R. It's Einstein and Go-Go. 3 Triple Uh, welcome back, folks. If you're wondering what the tracks are that were played, uh, that one was by the Gracemakers called Heaven's Friend, and before that was Tiger Town with Morning Has Finally Come. Now, we've got a bit more news for you. It's one of those weeks. Did you people in the studio and others see about this uh, work that was done where they, they took images and projected them into um, the uterus or, you know, the basically pregnant women and, and babies 
in utero actually turned and looked at these images of faces. Did you see no. that? What? No. That's so, amazing. Check this out. So we know that babies sort of recognise faces almost, you know, from birth, very early on, and they, they, they sort of look at them straight away. Like mm. faces are different to other yep. objects, which which is not trivial in itself. It means there's a lot going on for that to be the case. Well, there's this particular team that has been looking at, um, the guy's name is Vincent Reed. He's from Lancaster University in the United Kingdom. And they've found this way to project, visually project images to the inside of a pregnant woman so that the baby can see these light images on its, on the outer surface of its environment. And by doing three or, you know, three dimensional ultrasounds at the same time, they watch the baby turn and look at these images. Womb faces. Wow. So, yeah. In utero entertainment. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so basically what it does, it, it, it takes back um, at what point um, developing fetuses are able to recognise faces. It's wow. Pretty cool stuff. Um, it's a little anyway. bit creepy. I can't imagine <laughs> signing up for that. Like, we're just going to project some images yeah. in your womb. Yeah. So you all right with that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here's one of an alien, and here's one yeah. of you. Yeah, I'm wondering. You, you could really do stuff to kids. Oh, this, what what could go wrong? Yeah. yeah. It's, look, it's, it's <laughs> early... <laughs> it's it's early days stuff, but uh, the researchers do come out with the caveat. Uh, ladies, please do not shine bright lights at your belly. Yes. Um, don't you know, try this at home. Yeah, don't try be, this at home. That would be a very interesting <laughs> ethics committee discussion like that one. Oh, yeah. Very interesting. And they did it with not a small number of um, uh, recipients too. It was like about 30 or 40 different um, women signed up for this. And Keep tra- Just track yeah. those kids. Cool stuff. Just, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. You okay to go, Dr. Yes. Locke? Yeah, you good? So what I read about <laughs> this week, which I thought was really interesting, was that they've developed crumb-free bread so that astronauts can finally eat bread in space. Now, when we think about space food, you know, we think that it might be a little bit depressing. It's, you know, it's freeze-dried, it's dehydrated. Actually, when I think about eating in space, I don't know if anyone remembers a Simpsons episode <laughs> where Homer opens the yeah, bag yeah. of crisps yes. Yes. and then yeah. everyone shouts, no, in slow motion. <laughs> yes. And, of course, because, you know... This this is everything's going to flow around space now there has been a 52 year bread ban by nasa because back in the um, 50s or 60s can i do that math from 52 years ago so apologies um two astronauts actually smuggled a corned beef sandwich on board (laughs) (laughs) i didn't know this is amazing as you do as you do they put it in a space suit and they smuggled it on now of all the things of all the things corned beef really jar nutella anyone where are Sorry, they from? The UK. But um, <laughs> anyway, so um, they smuggled this sandwich on board. Um, they ate the sandwich. They got away with it. But um, they got heavily reprimanded when they got back mm. on Earth. Apparently, the crumbs kind of went everywhere. It was lodged in the equipment. It could have been really dangerous. It could have caused a fire. Yep. Since then, bread's off the menu. Um, everybody uses tortillas. So, um, you know, with the kind of advent that, you know, there's going to be more space, uh, more space travel in the future and also, you know, with the International Space Station, you know, you're on there. You can be on there for six months. A German company called Bacon Space has been trying for a very long time to make bread that is safe you know, to be baked in space. They've been coming up with new dough mixtures that won't crumb. Such you said delivered freshly daily. <laughs> yeah. uh, no. I was going to say, you could, I mean, I'm, I'm going to offend a, a lot of people. <laughs> I'm about, about to offend a lot of people, including my wife, but just send some gluten-free bread up. That don't do yeah, shit. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty horrible. It's like a freaking brick. That, that won't like break up. <laughs> that won't break up at all. So they're trying, they're, they're two things. The first thing that they're going to send up is pre-baked dough. 
Yep. They're also kind of making special ovens, which they're going to use as well. Oh, yep. And this is all going to be tested on a mission that's kind of going ahead in 2018. So watch the space. Okay. They're going to, you know, test these things watch out. Watch the space. Watch the space. Watch the space. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but um, also, you know, when you think about how bread rises, it rises against gravity. So this yes. bread is going to rise in all directions. So wow. it's going to be super fluffy, but not crummy. And what they think they're going to be able to do in the future is perhaps like bring them back to Earth and sell us space bread. Yeah, space bread's good. Can space I just bread. say... Yeah. They are going to have a real tough time working out what direction to put the bread into the toaster. Yeah. If there's no oh. up and down. But I think if, no but if, you, if you've got like a, you'd need like a spherical heat surface, wouldn't you? And you yeah, put the thing inside, it hovers inside yeah, there, yeah. getting warmer. And I think that'd be fun as. Well, you just hold it up to the sun. Be bread balls. You'd buy space <laughs> yeah. bread balls. Space yeah. ball bread. There it is right there. <laughs> Just in time for the second movie, um, which I believe Mel Brooks is making. I believe so. I hope so, but he's been promising that since the end end of the first movie. (laughs) It's a long time ago. Well, we will look out for the space uh, bread. Um, I'm sure sure you'll be able to buy it in local retail stores (laughs) before long. Dr. Ewan? Whiskey. Who likes whiskey here? I'm not a big fan, but they have been known to. You you like whiskey, yeah. Some people love their whiskey. I've I've seen Dr. Laura walking down the street. Some Brown paper bag. Yeah. We've got nothing to add. Keep going. <laughs> That's it. And, and people will pay a lot of money for good whiskey. Yeah. In, in some cases, tens of thousands of dollars mm-hmm. for the like really, really, really top shelf stuff. Yep. And it's actually a bit of an issue with fake whiskeys and yeah. determining the origin and so forth. And so the way that we typically um, do this is we use mass spec. So people take whiskey and they break down all the components and you know they can tell you about the profile of that whiskey. But it's actually a bit of a pain to use mass spec for that. And sure. So some work in the Journal of Chem has shown... Uh, using fluorescent dyes, 22 dyes, the authors have managed to determine the characters of whiskies from US, from the UK, good whiskey, bad whiskey, with a really, really accurate, you know, level. So, like, essentially, it's very reliable. So, they've had 33 whiskies from all around the world, and they could very clearly show their profile. Is it, is it calibrated against some, some dude who looks like Mark Twain? I would assume Samuel so. Samuel Crimmins? I would assume so. Because you'd have to. Yeah. yeah. Have to be yeah. Have to be there are rules about Tweed that. Tweed jacket, darkly yeah. lit room, mm. some candles probably. Mm. That's yeah. what I'm imagining. Yeah. Something like yeah. that. It's got to be a good calibration. Yeah. 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 So, but yeah, it's very good technique. And I think they're now going to use this for red wine. And I, get, I think this is an interesting story, but potentially a tragedy as well, because one of the things that always amuses me is reading wine labels and mm. how they describe the characteristics yes. of wine. I love it. My all-time favourite is blah, 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 with a hint of pencil shavings. Oh, now, nice. One, I don't know whose palate can actually pick that against everything else, but who would want that <laughs> in their wine? <laughs> yeah. but, I think <laughs> someone's having a laugh. I, I think they might yeah. be, maybe. But then again, I'm not sure, because some people who write wine labels take themselves a little bit Very too most, seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd say most. So I think this is good. Uh, you just get a little chemical profile on your wine label, no, no more need for those people who write those things. So, so I often wondered in the in the writing, <laughs> you know, in the, in, the, in the way in which writers evolve, whether you start with cosmetics and move to wine labels, whether it's the other way. <laughs> because, you know, I mean, there's a level of creativity there's a certain that's required. I reckon, there, I reckon there's another uh, another piece of that cogwheel too, and that's, that's you know, Bad travel writing, yeah. In flight regulation, we, travel writing. We might try and map this out. This could uh, be good. Yes. We could map this could out. Could be a fun segment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How far can you go? Yeah. Interesting stuff. Well, uh, Chris Kepi, uh, wine tasting robot. That's yeah. I kind of like mm. it. I kind of like it. And is it something that you could? Could you like put a? I'm just thinking. Can you connect this? Yeah. Can you get a probe in your house and sort of test the wine that you spent five thousand bucks on and 
get send it off to a computer that can do a theme for you and tell where you've been ripped off or not. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, was exactly. I ripped off when I spent five thousand dollars? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, I wonder. Anyway, um, I, I, look, I was. I first I need to correct myself um, because uh, when I was talking about the the mushroom earlier. I mentioned mm. it was it was in Colorado. That's not true. Um, there may be mushrooms in Colorado. There might even be old ones. But that story was not. That was actually from Brazil. Um, but the reason that uh, I hey, thought maybe Colorado was just on, different even, back then. Not come even on. the right continent. But hey, well, that's, well, that's that's a good point. It was actually yeah, that's a very good point. It's, it's they were really all connected was, back then, though. Yeah, well, that's my point. So uh, yeah, yeah, so no, the, fair point. That mushroom was from what is now Brazil, <laughs> but at the time, you know, tectonic yeah, plates, yeah, exactly. You know, apples shrinking, etc. But no, but the the reason I I was confused um, in this case <laughs> is because the the story I'm about to tell you about was from Colorado. Um, so, Are you sure? Yeah, no, but I'm going to go with it for now. I've You've got like a minute confidence. left, you know. Um, a whole minute? Yeah. Oh, let's take your time then. Um, basically, <laughs> this is this is a bee story, and so bees go out and they, they pollinate stuff, but of course, they don't just pollinate Bees aren't all the same. They don't just pollinate the same old stuff. And the flowers they're pollinating are all different in terms of structure and, and everything else. And so knowing that there's bees out there is not enough. You need to know what they're doing mm. and which bees can do whatever else. So essentially the scientists who have published this paper in Nain Plus One recently have basically said, okay, we can test a bee. We know how long its tongue is. We know what it likes to feed on, etc. So we know what bees um, will pollinate, but we, and we, but we also know what noise they make. And so what they've done is recorded these bees and they're able to go, okay, if you hear this sound, firstly we can tell you how many bees are there by the volume and the nature of the sound, but we can also tell you what they're doing in that area because they can't be doing things that it's impossible for them to do. So rather than going out and doing what you would normally do, which is look at the bees, which is extraordinarily labour-intensive, these guys are saying, no, no, you can go out and record them, just stick the microphone out there, bring it back, run it through the algorithm, it'll say, yep, this is the one, two or three different kinds of bees you've got, mm. therefore, in this quantity, therefore they're pollinating these plants which tells you, do you need to get more bees in that are better equipped to pollinate the things you want to pollinate or not? These guys are doing themselves out of a job. That is the ultimate aim of most technology, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> do yourself out of a job. Yeah. Very interesting stuff, yeah. Chris KP. Well, we're going to have to hand over to the team from Eat It. Um, <clears throat> are they over there? Yeah, I think they're in the other studio. Ah, well, if everything goes quiet, you'll know they're not there. They're having a whiskey, I think. They're having a whiskey. <laughs> well, Cam often does partake before the show. I've, I've seen him do it. <laughs> In food, and he's, he's wandering out. He's going to come in and thump me now, I think, because he's, uh, he's outraged. <laughs> outraged, there he is. Um, thanks so much for listening today, folks. We hope you enjoyed the interview of Jane Goodall. Um, I'll share a link to that in case you missed it later in the day. Dr. Laura, thanks so much. Good to see you. Thanks for having me, Dr. Shane. Dr. Ewan, did I do okay with Jane? Wonderful. Yeah, because I was a bit nervous with you listening. I would in. have done better, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I tell myself that. Yeah, right. After all, you're a superhero of science. No one needs on the outside, I promise. Uh, yeah. Google, Google that, folks, and you'll see pictures of you and Chris KB. Thanks so much. Totally grouse. And uh, Liv, thanks for doing our Twitter feed. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere, and have a great Sunday. It's beautiful out there, folks. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.